listening to PetLifeRadio.com. That's it. You're madder than a junkyard dog, and you're not going to take it anymore. Your feathers are ruffled, your dander's up, and you've got a definite bone to pick. Welcome to Pet Peeves, the show that lets you dig through the dirt and unleash your passion for pets. Why let sleeping dogs lie when you can take the bull by the horns and let the fur fly? So get your claws out and get ready to rattle some cages on Pet Peeves with your host, pet expert and award-winning author, Amy Showjob. Hey there, and welcome to Pet Peeves on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Amy Shujai, and this week, the show offers vital insight from a veterinary forensic specialist, Dr. Melinda Merck of the ASPCA, and that brings me to my rant of the week. Now, I'll admit to being confused and horrified that anyone could intentionally abuse an animal. Animal cruelty is defined as acts of violence or neglect. Now, certainly, some of these cases may be due to poor information, but too many instead stem from empty-headed stupidity, flat-out meanness, or psychologically abnormal individuals. The media reports cases of animal hoarding, dog and cockfighting, pet abandonment, and even torture all too often. And while abuse is a crime everywhere in the United States, some places treat it more seriously than others. And folks, listen, what good are laws if they're not going to be enforced or, or worse, can't be prosecuted properly for lack of necessary evidence? Why should it matter, you ask? Well, because animal abusers are five times more likely to eventually commit violent crimes against people. Animals have no voice. They have no ability to defend themselves, and the crimes against these innocents are particularly heinous. My guest today is doing something about it, and she is the voice for the animal victims. Dr. Melinda D. Merck joined the ASPCA in 2007 as a forensic veterinarian and now serves as Senior Director of Veterinary Forensics in Anti-Cruelty. Dr. Merck frequently testifies as a forensic veterinary expert for animal cruelty cases all across the country. She continues to be a veterinary forensic consultant for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Atlanta, Georgia, and she also conducts veterinary forensic examinations for Gwinnett and DeKalb County animal welfare. So plant your furry tails, listeners, and we'll give you something to really hiss about after these messages from our sponsors. Okay, time to call off the dogs. Pet Peeves will be back with more biting topics right after we kibble a little with our sponsors. It's time for school for you and your friends, your furry best friends. Train your dog the fun and easy way with Teacher's Pet Sessions. Teacher's Pet host Pia Silvani teaches you step-by-step how to train your dog the fun and easy way. You get eight 30-minute live audio training sessions, complete transcripts of each session, plus a basic training manual to get you and your dog off to a great start. Training begins the moment you bring your dog home. Teacher's Pet Sessions offers positive reinforcement training to shape your dog's behavior and encourages upbeat, enthusiastic responses to ensure that your dog will enjoy learning. Teacher's Pet Sessions dog training is fun at both ends of the leash. 
So listen, learn, and laugh with your dog with Teacher's Pet Sessions. Get your copy of Teacher's Pet Sessions Volume 1 today. To order, go to TeachersPetSessions.com. Hi, this is Pia Salvani, your host. Bring your dog, tug toy, and treats, and get ready to have some fun. TeachersPetSessions.com. When you're looking to add a pet into your life, consider adopting a homeless animal from your local shelter or rescue group. Whether you want a kitten, puppy, or a more mature pet, a purebred or a one-of-a-kind mixed breed, even a rabbit or hamster, your shelter has the best selection of animals anywhere, all screened for good health and behavior. PetLifeRadio.com presents Take Me Home with your host, Susan Daffron. Join us each week as we showcase wonderful pets, tell stories, and even throw some pet education into the mix. So get ready to find out why the pet adoption option can be a great way to add a furry companion into your life. Take me home every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We know you're foaming at the mouth to get back to pet peeves, so here's Amy with some more tail-tying, fur-flying fun. Welcome back to Pet Peeves on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Melinda D. Merck, and she literally wrote the book on crime scene investigation, CSI, in animal abuse cases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Merck. Thank you. I always like to ask my guests to tell listeners a little bit about themselves personally. What, what dogs and cats or other critters share your life and your love? Uh, currently, I have two dogs, two large dogs, and uh, nine cats. Uh, the entire household is uh, 12 and over. I would say it's a, a very quiet geriatric house right now. <laughs> <laughs> Why veterinary forensics? How did this come about? You're, you're a veterinarian, and I assume that you, you had a practice that was more in the mainstream earlier on, but how did you get involved in the forensic side? Well, it's quite, um, it's actually, we were just thinking about this. It's a very amazing path. Uh, it's only happened really over the past uh, six years. The, I, I did have a, a private practice, and um, I would see cases of animal abuse. And I, I guess it was my second year out, I saw a, a case of animal cruelty against a kitten, and I reported it, and it stunned the uh, investigators because veterinarians never reported cruelty. And what transpired over the years is, is across the nation, we saw more laws being passed for cruelty um, in the, as far as felony and misdemeanors, well, in 2001, I believe it was um, the Animal Cruelty Act for Georgia was passed, creating it a felony. And I had a client tell me about a new group that had formed uh, called Georgia Legal Professionals for Animals, and their mandate was to provide free education to law enforcement prosecutors, judges, and veterinarians. Uh, so I joined the group, and they immediately tapped me to do the crime scene and forensics. A presentation to law enforcement, which meant I had to learn. So that was the motivating force, I think, to get more involved in that level. So I started working with medical examiners uh, locally in Atlanta, 
uh, the state medical examiners, and um, I was on call. Whenever they had a homicide, I would come down and observe. And that's how it all started, really, was uh, 2002. So I guess it's been seven years. Wow. Now, that your, your one statement there, they just kind of blew me away there. You said that they were surprised that a veterinarian would have reported a cruelty case and because this just did not happen. Has that changed at all? And why would veterinarians not do that? It's changed somewhat. We're, it's, we're fighting this battle um, because it's not really addressed in school. And the veterinarians, if they, if they aren't taught it, then they, they don't want to do it or they're not comfortable doing it. And I think it's an unfamiliarity with the laws, their liability, and reaching the veterinary community, you know, with thousands of veterinarians out there, it's hard. And, and they don't feel comfortable uh, reporting, uh, especially most of the time we're talking about clients uh, that have come in. So it's a matter of teaching them how to handle that um, and what their liability is. We're seeing this change, uh, certainly at the vet schools. We're, we're up to uh, four vet schools that are offering a veterinary forensics elective. I believe it's four, uh, and or trying to incorporate it into shelter medicine. The veterinarians, it's not that they don't love animals, it's just they don't, they think that they've got to absolutely know it's cruelty before they report it. And, uh. and really need to, as soon as they're suspicious, they need to report it to, so an investigation can occur. And so it's a tricky gray area on how they handle it because they don't want to make the client mad if, and then they're worried about being wrong. You know, what I tell them is by the time, I'm like, we're not going into the exam room to examine the puppy thinking animal cruelty. So by the time that our suspicion is up, they need to pay attention because something's not right because we're not thinking cruelty in private practice. So they should report it. I know in another area of my life, I have been a teacher, and when you are teaching, that is part of your training, and it is actually, you could be cited, and the law could come after a teacher for not reporting a suspicion of child abuse, and there is now, we know there is a link between animal abuse and domestic violence or child abuse, those types of things. So I would think that's something that the veterinarians could really make a great impact and be a big help. Exactly. And and I try to, when I do the trainings, is present them with so many cases that there was a link by that when they went to the house, they uh, found evidence of child abuse or it was a hoarding situation. It was worse. But I tell them most of the time we're going to be seeing in private practice is some kind of family violence-related act. And um, so that's when we've got to be prepared to pull in. You don't just call an investigator, but you also want to support the client, have some uh, counselors' cards or phone numbers and um, shelters' information for women uh, that are in those kind of situations. Sure. Now, with people, and I think all of our listeners are familiar with the television program, the CSI shows that focus on murder. And this is really, to my mind, that's really brought this whole idea of we got to have scientific facts, you know, bringing and supporting all of our suspicions. Does your work ever overlap then with human cases of violent crime and how does that all interrelate it does sometimes it does it's most of the time it's going to be domestic violence um there's times where we have um in fact in atlanta uh, i believe they just yeah they just pled guilty um there was a, a 
burglary, armed armed robbery. These two individuals broke into the house, shot the the guy, and also shot the dogs. And um, so, what the outcry, of course, was the dogs were behind the sofa and shot. You know, they weren't in threat. So they got they pled guilty. I think they got twenty years because um, the guy lived. Um, so there's all sorts of. Um, you know, gang-related activity, you know, where they'll do some initiation and um, but and domestic, most of it's domestic violence. Most of it is domestic violence um, okay. and family violence. Okay, well, take us through a case. Exactly what do you do from the time you get a call to, I'm assuming, on-site collection of evidence to lab analysis and testifying in the trial. What do you do and what evidence are you looking for and how is it used to make a case? Well, it depends on the case. What I'm looking for, regardless, what I'm looking for is trying to recreate the crime, looking for evidence that supports or refutes the statements made by the suspect, the uh, eyewitnesses, and looking for, um, like I said, it depends. In dog fighting, we're looking for paraphernalia supportive of dog fighting. Um, maybe looking to collect specimens to match with DNA. Um, gunshot reconstruction comes up, but... It just depends. Most of the time, the cases I'm getting involved with are usually large-scale dog fighting, hoarding, puppy mills, or violent crimes. So what we're trying to do is, in all crimes, you're trying to link a suspect to the crime scene, a suspect to the victim, the victim to the scene. So it's a circle that you're trying to connect the dots. And the problem with animal cruelty cases is there's usually no witnesses. Um, there's similar, in, as far as strategy for investigation and prosecution, they're similar to crimes against children because you have the same set of circumstances of a victim that can't testify or usually can't testify and, um, and no witnesses that are going to say anything. So that's what we're tra- I'm trying to do. So I may be looking for a weapon where the animal was standing when they were shot, you know, and, and it's important to always know what's the law. Because if the law says, like in the state of Florida that I just moved to, all you have to do is prove unjustifiable pain or suffering for a felony. So those are the key elements, which is actually a very nice law. Some states have, you have to prove torture. So you have to know your laws and know what kind of evidence you need to support that law in order to take it. So I may be collecting blood. I may be analyzing blood spatter. And then on most of the cases we have, um, on the large-scale cases, there's animals that have been killed or died, and they've dumped the bodies or they've buried them. So my, one of my big things at the scene is doing excavations and um, collection of the deceased animals for analysis. Wow. And so this leads me right into the next question. You have all of the fancy tests and equipment we see on the CSI television programs, right? <laughs> what about, tell listeners about the van. Last year at our Cat Writers Association conference, the ASPCA forensic van was there. We had a chance to tour this. This is a marvelous piece of equipment. Explain to listeners what this is. On the CSI unit, we have equipment for collecting blood and actually doing what's called a presumptive blood test, which is what you see on the show CSI where they test it and it turns bright pink uh, or there's another one that turns blue. So we, I have that on there and I have alternative light sources that will identify different fluids and fibers 
And then one of the neatest things we got is a uh, thermal imaging camera. It's called a FLIR camera. And what it does is it takes images of the body surface of the animal. So if there is suspicion or reports that an animal has been beaten or injured in some way, in, since animals don't bruise very well, this device will pick up those hot zones of where ah. the injury occurred. So actually, it is giving the animal a voice and saying, hey, look, I am hurt. Exactly. Because they're walking around. They're not going to cry when you touch them in those areas. Um, so these are the, when we don't have fractures or obvious broken skin, how do you evaluate that animal? And that's a big frustration for law enforcement because they'll get a call. Someone was beating their puppy or whatever, and they get there, and the puppy's running around. Looks fine. Right. You know. Okay, I know that you said, you know, there's no witnesses. And, and I wondered, have you ever had cases where the other animals who were witnesses, and of course, you know, can't really talk to us, but do indicate in some form or fashion, can that ever become evidence where the other animals you know, cringe away from the perpetrators, in some way indicate that this was a bad person, this was a bad guy that did something to their furry friend? I think it depends on the behavior. Um, there's some research going on, um, certainly a level of interest from the um, an applied animal behaviorists. I know Pam Reed at the ASPCA is looking at certain behavior behaviors associated with cruelty, and um, I know someone at North Carolina State is as well. You know, some animals just react to men or react to women or whatever it, the reaction might be. Or somebody One, wearing a hat, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly that kind of information can help investigators. You know, um, like you say, the hat, the baseball cap, or the uh, glasses. But one behavior that I think is um, would be admissible and critical is um, I had a case where a cat, the owner said every time her boyfriend walked in the room, the cat screamed, froze, screamed, and urinated and defecated. Like fear, oh. and, and that's the ultimate fear, I'm going to die, you know, fear reaction. So I think that ultimate extreme reaction could be used. Uh, so something okay. was going on there. Yeah. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Merck. <laughs> okay, time to call off the dogs. Pet Peeves will be back with more biting topics right after we kibble a little with our sponsors. Give your dog some thought with Dog Thoughts. It's the iPhone application that everyone's talking about. Hey, what do you think of this? A man in Davis, California says he's invented an application for the iPhone that claims it can read your dog's mind. Huh? No, it's true. Now, I read about it on my cat's Twitter page. That's why. Jay Leno talked about it, CBS reported on it, and now you can see what all the buzz is about. Created just for dog lovers, Dog Thoughts makes taking photos of your furry best friend more fun. Shake your dog and read his mind. <gasps> on your iPhone, of course. Take a pic of your pup, shake your phone, and watch as his thoughts appear on the screen. Does he have a bone to pick with you, or is he having a tail-wagging day? Get your Dog Thoughts iPhone app today. Just 99 cents. Go to PetLifeRadioPromotions.com. That's PetLifeRadioPromotions.com. Greetings, human. What planet am 
Meyer. Welcome to Pet Planet. Here's a copy of Pet Planet Magazine, Florida's most informative and fun pet resource magazine. It features heartwarming stories and informative articles from local and national pet experts. Excellent. Pet Planet Magazine offers Operation Planet Rescue, helping rescued pets find new homes. And it's available at 500 locations in South and Central Florida and 24-7 on the Internet at PetPlanetMagazine.com. If you're out and about with your pet, you may be featured in Paparazzi, Candid Pictures of You and Your Pet. For up-to-date pet-friendly events, activities, and pet-related services and products, Pet Planet Magazine is your final destination. I shall take this magazine home with me. Back to your home planet? No, to my condo in Boca. Pet Planet Magazine. Check them out at www.petplanetmagazine.com or 352-394-8578. It's out of this world. Hi, this is Marcy Davis and my service dog, Whistle, and we're your hosts of Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Working Like Dogs is the show where you can learn everything you ever wanted to know about working animals or working dogs. Whether you're a member of a working dog team or you've just seen a working dog or animal out at the mall or the grocery store and you're curious about how these amazing animals work with their human partners, then Working Like Dogs is the show for you. Join us for the inside scoop at Working Like Dogs on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We know you're foaming at the mouth to get back to pet peeves. So here's Amy with some more tail-tying, fur-flying fun. We're back. And again, speaking with Dr. Melinda D. Merck. She is the co-author of Veterinary Forensic Investigation of Animal Cruelty, a guide for veterinarians and law enforcement. And more recently, the author of Veterinary Forensics, Animal Cruelty Investigation. Dr. Merck, why did you write these books? Uh, uh, well, the first one, the Forensic Investigation book uh, that I co-authored, that came about uh, after meeting Randy Lockwood, um, who at the time was working for HSUS, and um, he needed someone to help uh, write part of that book. So that was the first one. I had called him up because I heard he had written a book. That was the frustrating thing is there was nothing out there. There was nothing written um, articles, nothing out there to help with cruelty on the on the veterinarian side, evaluations of injury, and nothing on the investigation side. So that started that, and then once we got that book done, I realized I'm like it, it is not technical enough for um, and focused enough on the actual examinations or crime scene in the vet, for the veterinarians. So um, and veterinarians like their textbooks. And my theory was is that if they have a textbook on the shelf and they see a case of cruelty, then maybe they'll do something. Um, they'll pull the book out and, you know, know how to collect the bullet um, or whatever the, uh, the case dictates. So that was the reason for that. I remember years ago now... Um the first veterinarian that I worked with uh, as a vet tech, we had a case where there had been a rash of burglaries in the area and um, a dog, a wonderful Doberman, had been shot. 
and we were asked to recover the bullet for the police, and that bullet ultimately convicted the guy. So, oh, you know, those were yeah. that was 20 years ago. 20 yeah. years ago, in those days, who knew? If the dog had not been killed, they would not have caught this fella. That just strikes my memory, and I'm wondering, you've done so much. Is there a top one case, memorable case, that you've worked on that just wowed you and what's the worst case what's the most satisfying case that that comes to mind i think there's a couple of them but you know most recently was the michael vick case and oh yeah because for me it was satisfying because the forensic piece ended up being the key and and i didn't know that until last year i didn't know that it was that important because I talked to one of the defense attorneys, and they were all going to go to trial. No one was pleading until they got my report. So that I would say that that was the most satisfying, and <laughs> thank God I didn't know it at the time that that was the key, uh, have under that much <laughs> pressure. So I think that that was satisfying. And it wasn't just the, the report. I learned that uh, report writing, how important that is, uh, because it, it that's what made them... Um, decide they didn't want me testifying. So I turned that around into trying to train others that you can't, how important that report writing is. And maybe the law plea and you don't have to go to court, which is all good. All right. So it's not just the the collect, and that's something I think people uh, don't understand on these CSI programs crimes are not solved in you know 20 minutes half an hour uh, this goes on i mean the michael vick case went on for months actually years and then there's all the paperwork and that kind of dare i say drudgery of dotting all the i's crossing all the t's and getting that done what is what percentage of the work is the paperwork oh that's the uh, most the report writing and and um colleagues of mine and i talk you know People come and help us at the scene, and, um, you know, our teams come. But those of us who are in charge of the report, I mean, we're, our, our work has just begun. And I think that's the hardest part is to, for me is to write the, the report because I'm reliving it. Yes. And so I think those are, are tough for those of us who do that. The biggest report I wrote was 70 pages, 77 pages, wow. and it was the Puppy Mill in Tennessee. So, yeah, that took about a week. And speaking to the um, you know, the toughness, reliving these things, um, how do you deal with the emotional stress of having to go in and, and seeing the aftermath, in some cases, the ongoing cruelty that's being dealt with? How do you deal with that yourself? Go home and pet your dogs? I mean, it's really, it is. Hug a cat? Um, yeah, I think you have to, there's two things. You have to have an outlet and talk about it. So you're, the people you're working with, the law enforcement, like the U.S. Attorney, Mike Gill, and I, and the USDA investigator, we're all really great friends now because we talked. You and we talk all the time. Uh, a friend of mine, the DA in Atlanta, when we have a case, we talk all the time because, you know, our mom and dads don't want to hear it. So, yeah. well, you know, so that's our release. And then, um, yeah, you want to, I, I don't want to lose faith in the human race. So you have to balance out with good. And that's spending time with the animals and, um, you know, knowing what rejuvenates your spirit. Because, um, and, and, you know, the, we tend to have good outcomes. And even if we don't, we learn. So uh, I guess I'm, uh, I'm an optimist. My, um, my boss, Randy, uh, says that I look at a glass 
you know, some people look at it half empty or half full, and I look at it as a um, source of fingerprints and DNA. But the, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to have a good attitude towards it. You know, um, I'm not, I don't ever get invested in the outcome or the defendant. You know, that will drain you. You, you can't. I think anybody who works with animals, you have to find a balance on how you can deal with the good, bad, and ugly and the emotional drain it takes on anybody who works with animals. Absolutely. Well, how can listeners recognize cruelty cases, and what can they do if, if they have a suspicion? Can you give us some tips? What are, sure. say, the top three things, and what can they do? Well, the most common thing they're going to see is neglect and uh, that citizens tend to see. If you see signs of neglect, an animal that's being tied up outside in the heat, no food, no water, you need to know who investigates cruelty in your area. Report any suspected thing that doesn't look right. And it can be, you know, the, the hoarders, the, the people, men and women that collect large number of animals. There can be an odor. Um, we had one case that the neighbors had noticed there was flies all inside the windows. And oh. they called the health department and the nev- health department never came out. So, and there was 170 dead cats in the house. So, oh, gosh. You know, it's and in if you don't get somewhere, you know, someone um, doesn't. If you don't get the response that you want, or you find that your area is um, not responding to cruelty, you need to find out why. Uh, sometimes it's resources. Um, yeah. And sometimes they just don't know. What I did is I called the district attorney's office because ultimately every case belongs to the prosecutor. And I found someone that was going to prosecute animal cases, and I'm like, look, no one's investigating. And then she took action to make sure. So there's always a way around doing that. And, you know, get involved. I I would say to be educated. I know on the website, the ASPCA, we have a whole list of different types of cruelty and what could be suspicious you know, matting of coats. I mean, like I said, most of the time it's going to be really obvious uh, what you're seeing that doesn't look right. And then um, I would say stay educated about what's going on in the laws. Um, It's amazing to me that how many state legislators never hear from anybody in their area. And so when they get eight emails or eight phone calls, they sit up and they, they get a little nervous about whatever bill that is, um, because to hear from eight people, that I just found this out last year, I thought that was shocking. So we have a stronger voice than we take advantage of. Okay, I know locally here, and uh, I'm, I'm north of Dallas, and a colleague of mine who fosters is currently fostering a kitty that somebody tried to skin alive, and they don't know who did it. They know the area was picked up in, and they called the police on it, and the police didn't have the uh, the manpower to look into it further and just the whole attitude. And this has caused a huge uproar and things just that. If you can get mm-hmm. a particular case and put a face on it, uh, an individual, and suddenly people start taking notice. So I know you, that... Yeah. yeah, you had that case where the honey, the dog that was burned or something in Dallas? yes. We also had a dog that was blinded, a beagle that was blinded. And I think as a result of that, we had, it became a felony. And before that, not. We now have anti-tether laws. 
in Texas, which is rather new, just the past year, year and a half, I believe. So it, you can make differences, and it's a shame that the animal has to suffer first, but right. thank goodness people are sitting up and taking notice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm originally well, I'm, from Texas, so I, I've been tracking uh, what's going on there, so that's great. Well, I know basically you've pioneered this field, and we mentioned earlier, I think in the first part of the show, that universities now are offering education in forensics, is correct? What else can you tell us about that? Where is this uh, being offered? Can citizens take some of these classes and learn more? It's actually um, what first started with Purdue University, Georgia, University of Georgia, and now University of Florida have veterinary forensic electives. And those are the first one. So those are for the veterinary students as part of their curriculum, which is was amazing that they're they're doing that. Fantastic. The other aspect yeah. is we just started this program. And I just moved to Gainesville, Florida, Friday. So I've been wow. in the house three days. Is to start a veterinary forensics program out of the University of Florida, in addition to teaching at the vet school. What? The ASPCA did was give a gift of $150,000 for every year for the next three years, and we are working with a forensic professor, um, Dr. Jason Bird, is a forensic entomologist, and he has um, been. I've been working with him on cruelty cases since the first time I had fly a larvae um, on an animal, and so and that's really important because that gives us time of death. Yes, so explain to listeners. Explain to listeners what is an entomologist. An entomologist is like Grissom on the okay. uh, uh, CSI. <laughs> it's an expert on insects, and um, forensics just means that it's applied to answer legal questions. So, it turns out Dr. Bird is a big animal lover, has three cats, and and is considered one of the top two forensic entomologists in the world, and he's my personal entomologist. So I'm very excited. Wow. <laughs> um, and, yeah. So he and I have been working on cruelty cases and developing education programs. Uh, we've started um, we started the first forensics conference, veterinary forensics conference last year. Did it again uh, this year, second annual. We've now formed the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association. And we have people from all over the world, uh, veterinarians and law enforcement, that have come to that. Um, and then we've done our second annual animal crime scene workshop, which is where we teach them how to locate graves and how to map it and excavate a body. And we just had um, a vet student from Ireland, from Dublin, come over for that. Oh, so how had, cool is that? Yeah. We've had, uh, yeah, we've had New Zealand, Australia, let's see, Brazil, I'm trying to think, Canada, um, Norway, um, try to think all the countries we've had. I think we're up to like 10 different countries that have come over uh, for uh, the conferences. So it's really good that we're reaching um, everybody. So the whole point of the program is that we need to advance veterinary forensic science. Um, we have the support and um, of the American Academy of Forensic Science, which is actually mind-blowing. Uh, this is all the forensic scientists in the United States belong to that organization. And so the academy has been nothing but supportive. We've got resources uh, because they all have animals um, and love animals. So um, what we're going to do is 
start with a program where there is modules of crime scene investigation and trying to give certification to people on uh, online programs. And um, from there, um, after they do these, so they can hand, they can do these remotely. So this will be for investigators and law enforcement and veterinarians, vet students. It'll be really people who are working in the animal welfare field, primarily. Not it. It won't be necessarily for uh, just the public, um, and that's right. because we need to um, do those at certain levels and then move on through those different levels to give them expertise that they need. Absolutely. Well, where can folks find out more about this program or find out more about how they can recognize cruelty cases, all of that? What are some websites? We'll make sure and put these on your um, guest page, too. The ASPCA.org has a lot of information on cruelty, recognition, and response. There's also the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association, which is IVFSA.org. That has information, plus we're going to be launching, when we do the Veterinary Forensic Science Program, we're also going to have a website. So between all of those, they'll be connected and find out more and keep track of what we're doing. Um, maybe your listeners can inform their own veterinarians or their own um, law enforcement. Maybe they can, you know, funding is so tight for these agencies for travel and training. Maybe they can fundraise and help sponsor their local cruelty officer to go to some of this stuff. That would be terrific. And uh, we are, unfortunately, out of time. But uh, I would encourage listeners to visit these sites, learn more that you can, and uh, we will continue to provide some information for you. I'd like to thank Dr. Melinda Merck and the producers for making Pet Peeves possible. Now, I dare you to join me next week for Pet Peeves on Pet Life Radio for the next installment of What Hisses You Off. Email me suggestions or post a note to my blog by dialing up PetLifeRadio.com and clicking on the Pet Peeves logo. Woofs and purrs until next time. Educate yourselves about animal abuse and don't be shy about reporting cases to local authorities. Get involved. Get your authorities involved because it's simply the right thing to do. After all, we don't want our pets to get peeved. That's it. You're madder than a junkyard dog and you're not going to take it anymore. Your feathers are ruffled, your dander is up, and you've got a definite bone to pick. Join us each week on Pet Peeves, the show that lets you dig through the dirt and unleash your passion for pets. Your host, pet expert and award-winning author, Amy Shojai, will talk about what makes you howl and what hisses you off. Pet Peeves, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.